Bringing you another episode in the year of polygamy, where we highlight the lives and the wives of Joseph Smith and follow throughout the rest of the year to the practice of LDS polygamy and how it affects us today. So, today we are still covering the wives of Joseph Smith. There's a lot to get through. And we brought you last week the story of Emily Partridge. And if you haven't heard that story, you really need to hear that story. It's one of the most probably heart wrenching stories of all of Joseph's wives, in my opinion. But today we're going to talk about her sister, Eliza Maria Partridge Lyman, and she has a great story as well. She was involved with a lot of the things that Emily was also involved in, including the secret marriage to Emma. And if this is your first time tuning in, I would just ask you to go back to episode one with Fanny Alger and start in order. And I'd also like to thank our reader today. We like to, whenever we have firsthand primary sources from these women speaking in their own voice, we try to use our own voice. So today I have Grace Poole reading for me, and she's going to be reading as Eliza. So let's get into it. Eliza Maria Partridge Lyman. She was born on April 20th, 1820 in Painesville, Lake County, Ohio. And just like her sister Emily, she was a great journal writer, and we're really lucky to have a lot of her journal entries. So I'm going to go ahead and let her take us in about her life. I was born in Painesville, Georgia County, Ohio. My parents' names were Edward and Lydia Clisby Partridge. At a very early age, I was sent to school where I acquired a very good common education. At the age of eight years, my parents went on a visit to their friends in Massachusetts, taking me and my sister Caroline, then a babe, with them. The other children, my sisters Harriet and Emily, were left in the charge of my Aunt Phoebe Lee. We went to my grandfather Partridge's in Pittsfield, Berkshire County, Massachusetts, where they left me while they went to visit my mother's friends in the eastern part of the state. They returned in a short time, bringing my mother's sister Elsie with them. Although I was very young yet, I remember many things that I saw on this journey. My grandfather's nice brick house and the cedar mill, the orchard and the farm are all at plain in memory. Also, the cities that we passed through and the Erie Canal with its locks and the roaring of the Niagara Falls in the distance the crossing of the lake, my sickness while crossing, and many other things are still fresh in my mind. I do not remember anything more worthy of note except that I was sent to school until I was about 13 years of age, or a short time before this, when the Book of Mormon was shown to my father. He did not accept it at first as being what it was represented to be, but after making a journey to New York where the prophet Joseph Smith lived, and making inquiry of those in the church and also of those out, he became convinced that the Lord had commenced to set up his kingdom on the earth and embraced the opportunity of becoming a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and was adorned to the office of a bishop, there having been none ordained in this dispensation until that time. He then returned to his home in Ohio and after a time was called to leave his business, which was in a most flourishing condition, and go to Missouri to attend the business of the church. He went and left his family to get along as best they could. I was at that time very sick, and he had no expectation of seeing me again, for the Lord had called, and he must obey. He showed his faith by his works, and the Lord spared my life and the lives of the rest of his family for many years. He never went back to sell his place or settle his affairs, 
but left it for others to do, which was done at a great sacrifice. He had accumulated a handsome property, which went for a very little, as he could not be there to attend to it. His family was moved up to Missouri in company with others who were journeying to that land, which was quite a task on my mother as her children were small. I being the eldest, we children were five in number, and the weather was so cold that we were obliged to leave the Missouri River at a place called Arawak about 100 miles from Independence, and wait for my father to come with wagons to meet us. We procured a small, dark room for a family of Negroes, our only light being what came down the chimney, and no way to get in or out of the room except to go through the room occupied by the Negroes. We occupied this doleful place about a week when my father came out and took us away. The weather was extremely cold, so much so that we had to lay by one day or be in danger of being frozen. We, however, arrived at Independence in safety and occupied a small brick house which my father had rented for the winter as he had not yet had time to build. We lived very poor that winter as the people of that country did not want much but corn, bread, and bacon and raised very little of anything else. Consequently, there was but very little to be bought, but I remember we had a barrel of honey and what vegetables we could get, but no wheat bread as wheat was not to be bought in the land. So you can see Eliza's life is very much engulfed in this sort of frontier life, what we picture frontier life being. And Eliza would remember the persecution of the mob and witnessing the aftermath of her father who had been tarred and feathered. The next spring, we moved into a house that my father rented from Lilburn W. Boggs, where we lived until my father built a house on his own land. Here we lived while we stayed in that county. In July 1833, a number of armed men came to our house in the afternoon and took my father to the public square, where they administered to him a coat of tar and feathers and raised a whip with the intention of whipping him. But a friend to humanity interfered and prevented it. I well remember how my father looked. We, the children, were very much frightened. My mother was very weak, having a babe, a boy named for his father, but three weeks old. The brethren were very kind and assisted my father to rid himself of the tar, but the clothes he had on were spoiled. The people of that place had been acting the part of a mob towards our people for some time and still continued the same course until our people agreed to leave the county, which they did in the following November. It was very cold and uncomfortable moving at that time of the year, and the great amount, if not all, of our provisions that we had laid up for the winter were lost, and our houses left with many of our things in them. Our land and orchards and improvements of every kind left to benefit those who had driven us away. We traveled three miles and encamped on the bank of the Missouri River under a high bluff. The rain during the night poured down in torrents, which wet ourselves and our things badly. This was the first night that I had ever slept out of doors. The next day we crossed the river into Clay County, where my father laid up some house logs and stretched a tent on them so that we could stay here until he could go and find a house. The weather was very cold, but we were in the woods and could have plenty of fire. It was here that I saw the stars fall. They came down almost as thick as snowflakes and could be seen until the daylight hid them from sight. Some of our enemies thought the day of judgment had come and were very much frightened, but the saints rejoiced and considered it as one of the signs of the latter days. When my father had done what he could to help the brethren across the river, he, with others, went out to see if they could find some houses to move into. As there was already snow on the ground, he found a miserable old house that he could have with one fireplace in it, which he and a brother by the name of John Coral moved their families into. I think my mother, as also Sister Coral, must have had their patience tried very much during this winter, 
the house open and cold, and their cooking and children and husbands themselves all around one fireplace, for stoves were not in use then. I did what work I could get for almost any kind of pay, but there were so many wanting work that there was very little chance to get any. We lived in this old house while we stayed in Clay County, which was about two years. While here, my father went on a mission to the eastern states. After his return, he with others went to look for a location for the saints, as the people with whom we resided began to be somewhat uneasy about us. My father and those who were with him decided that a good place could be had in Caldwell County. They, our people, bought land there and removed their families there, thinking to live by themselves in peace, which we had for a while. While there, I went about 30 miles from home and taught school for three months, not hearing a word from home while I was away, and I did not see a person while there that I had ever seen before. But the Lord watched over me and returned me in safety to my parents again. I would never advise anyone to let a girl go away as I did then with entire strangers, to dwell with strangers. There was no uncommon thing in those times for our Mormon girls to go out amongst Missourians and teach their children for a small remuneration. I received but $13 in my board for three months that I was gone. I think the people were not as wicked then as they are now, or it would not have been safe for us to go about as we did. I was at this time about 17 years old. We remained in Caldwell for two or three years, when not only the mobs that were around us, but the authorities of the state said we must leave that county, which we did. We sailed in Illinois, first at Quincy, then at Pittsfield, Pike County, then at Nauvoo, which was the gathering place for the saints. In consequence of the persecutions of apostates, my father was obliged to leave far west before his family had arranged with Brother King Follett to bring them to Quincy. We had a very uncomfortable time, as the weather was cold and we were badly crowded in the wagon. Although we did as we had done every time that we moved, left most of our things. We crossed the Mississippi partly in a boat and partly on the ice. Father met us and took us to a house where we were more comfortable than we had been while traveling. We stayed here but a short time, as my father thought he could do better somewhere else, and the church was scattered with no place of gathering. However, it was not long before he went to Nauvoo as the prophet, who was yet in prison, had said he thought it was the place to gather to. The saints were nearly all sick with og and fever, and our family had to have a share. My two sisters, Harriet and Emily, had the og about a year. I did not have it, as I had worn it out when we lived in Ohio. As we were by this time much reduced in circumstances, having moved so many times and my father having poor health, it was thought best for me to take school at Lima a small town about 24 miles away, which I did, and my father rented rooms for his family in a large storehouse where several other families resided, one brother Hiram Smith and his brother-in-law, R.B. Thompson, and two more families, as they had not time to build yet. So you notice that as she's telling this story, she's bringing up some very influential names. And this is something that I really love about reading church history, is once you start getting familiarized with the names, you start recognizing names in this, and... She brings up in her journal, Brother King Follett helped bring them to, to Missouri. Now, anyone that knows that name knows that that's a pretty famous name for the King Follett Discourses they or, or the King Follett Sermon. And that was delivered in Nauvoo, Illinois by Joseph Smith about three months before he was assassinated. And the king, when King Follett died and had his funeral, Joseph gave the sermon and it is one of the most influential sermons in Mormon history because this is where Joseph 
claims that God was once a mortal man and that mortal men and women can become gods through eternal salvation and exaltation. And of course, this is really controversial even to this day with the new essays coming out with the church and all that that stuff. But if you have a second and you want to look at the King Follett discourse, I would go ahead and recommend doing that. So it's kind of fun to recognize those names in the history. So like her sister Emily, Eliza was very... um very much involved with her family and trying to make a living even as a young girl. And she too would remember the death of her sister, Harriet. While I was teaching at Lima, I boarded with a Gentile family and was well-treated, but suffered fearfully with headache. About two weeks before my school was out, my father sent a man for me saying that my sister Harriet was dying. We rode all night and arrived at home about sunrise. My sister was still alive, but died during the day. My parents took this trouble to heart very much. My father said she was his pet child, but no one knew it until then, and I do not think now that he knew any difference in his children. But I believe when a child or friend is taken from us, we are to think we love them more than others. This was in the spring, and my father was making a garden on his lot, which was a distance about a mile. As his health was very poor, and he did not feel able to walk so far to his work, he was also building a house. He concluded after the funeral of my sister that he would move down home and occupy a log house that he had put up for a stable but had not been used, and then he could work at his house and garden with more ease. He commenced to move, but had to give up and take to his bed before he had the last load moved. He was sick about ten days when he also left us most uncomfortably situated. I was too sick to attend the funeral. He was completely worn out with the hardships and fatigues of movings and exposure to our, but caused by our enemies, who never slackened their hands, but persecuted us continually. He was firm and steadfast in his religion, and tried to the very best of his ability to attend to every known duty as bishop in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We were in very poor circumstances at the time of his death, the handsome property that he had when he joined the church having been spent in the church, and he not having had the privilege of staying in one place long enough to amass more. After his funeral, Brother William Law took us to his house to stay until our house was finished. He and his wife were very kind to us, and doctored me and also my sister Lydia, who was very sick, so that in about three weeks we were able to move to our own house, which was finished. I forgot to mention that while we lived in Far West, I had learned a tailor's trade as far as sewing went, which I found of great use to me, as now, as I now could get to work at the tailor's shops and was paid $3 a week, which was a great help to us. After a year or two, my mother married again, as she could not get along, she thought, without someone to provide for her. She now had three daughters besides me and had one son about eight or nine years old. Her husband's name was William Huntington, a very good man and kind to my mother and her children. Now, another name that you've heard her talk about is William Law. Anyone that is familiar with church history will know that name. William Lott was an important figure in church history at, because he was once a friend of the church and Joseph Smith. But later, when he started seeing Joseph's practice of plural marriage, as well as some other things, he really became concerned about Joseph and the way he was doing it. And these Partridge sisters, he, he got to see this relationship up close and had a lot of problems with it. And he would go on to publish the single edition of the Nauvoo Expositor, which was like a newspaper that exposed a lot of these things. And you can go online and still read that. And that is what Joseph destroyed. He destroyed the printing press and set in motion a chain of events that ultimately led to Joseph Smith's death. So that's William Law. Now we start getting into the the time where 
Eliza is married to Joseph Smith, and here's what she tells us of her marriage. After a time, my sister Emily and myself went to live in the family of the prophet Joseph Smith. We lived there about three years. While there, he taught to us the plan of celestial marriage and asked us to enter into that order with him. This was truly a great trial for me, but I had the most implicit confidence in him as a, as a prophet of the Lord and not but believe his words. And as a matter of course, accept of the privilege of being sealed to him as a wife for time and all eternity. We were sealed in 1843 by H.C.K. Heber C. Kimball in the presence of witnesses. I continued to live with his family for a length of time after this, but did not reside there when he was martyred, which was the 27th of June, 1844. Now, we talk a lot about Eliza's marriage to Joseph Smith in the previous episode with her sister because Emily writes her sister's story, writes about Eliza's story and her and her story. I'm going to give you the short version, but again, I'd recommend you listen to that episode and catch yourself up. Basically, Emily and Eliza move into the Nauvoo house for work, and they help Emma with the kids. They babysit the kids. Uh, Emily really watches the children, and Eliza helps clean. And Joseph approaches them at different times and asks them to be plural wives. He tells them not to tell anyone but they eventually confide, confide in each other and realize he's asked them within a few days of one another to be their wife. They're both really hesitant to do it. They don't want to do it. You can see that Eliza says this is a big trial to her. Emily would say that she was terrified, but she felt really pressured by Heber C. Kimball and Joseph Smith. So they decide to get married to Joseph while living in the mansion house. Now, it gets really tricky because... He, Joseph is trying to introduce his practice to Emma. She doesn't want to do it. He tells her that uh, she gets to be the first woman to receive her endowment and become the elect lady. And if she becomes the elect lady, that means she can pass her endowment on to all the women. But she has to be the first one to administer to it. And he won't give her her endowment until she agrees to do polygamy. So, of course, this puts Emma in jeopardy. Does she put off her own eternal salvation because she's opposed to polygamy? And not only that, but if she doesn't get endowed, then she's stopping all the other women throughout the course of history from getting their endowment. So she has a lot of weight on her shoulders. So she finally agrees to plural marriage with tons and tons of hesitation. She's upset. She's crying. There's back and forth. She changes her mind. Then she changes it again. She decides to go through with this. Save she gets to choose who Joseph marries. Now, she isn't aware at this time that Joseph has already married a number of other women. She chooses Eliza and Emily Partridge because they're living in the home, and uh, Emily and Eliza would suspect it was because she could keep a better eye on them and see what they were doing. She doesn't know that they have been married to Joseph about three months earlier. So they go ahead and they stage a fake wedding with Emma there, and um, they go through it all again and pretend that this is the first time. Right after... Emma gets her endowment. Her sister Emily would say, quote, The first intimation I had from Brother Joseph that there was a pure and holy order of marriage was in the spring of 1842, but I was not married until 1843. I was married to him on the 11th of May, 1843, by Elder James Adams. Emma was present. She gave her free and full consent. She had always up to this time been very kind to me and my sister Eliza, who was married to the Prophet Joseph Smith with Emma's consent, but ever after she was our enemy. She used every means in her power to injure us in the eyes of her husband and before strangers, and in consequence of her abuse, we are obliged to leave the city to gratify her, but things were overruled otherwise, and we remained in Nauvoo. 
My sister Eliza found a home with the family of brother Joseph Coolidge, and I went to live with sister Sylvia Lyons. She was a good woman and one of the Lord's chosen few. Emma about this time gave her husband two other wives, Maria and Sarah Lawrence. So you can read more about this. Uh, There's a story of Eliza being locked in a room with Joseph Smith. Emma is walking down the hall. She realizes Joseph's locked in the room with Eliza, wants to know what's going on. Now, further study would say that nothing was going on. Joseph and Eliza were just having a conversation. I mean, that's speculation, but that's what we think happened. And Emma comes in and demands that the door is open. And she, according to Emily, she said, she sent for us one day to come to her room. Joseph was present looking like a martyr. Emma said some very hard things. She said she would rather her blood would run than be polluted in this manner. Joseph came to us and shook hands with us, and the understanding was that all was ended between us. I, for one, meant to keep the promise I was forced to make. We looked upon the covenants we had made as sacred. After our interview was over, we went downstairs. Joseph soon came into the room where I was and said, How do you feel, Emily? My heart still being very hard, I answered him rather short, that I expected I felt as anybody would under the circumstance. He said, You know my hands are tied. And he looked as if he would sink into the earth. I knew he spoke truly, and my heart was melted. All my heart feeling was gone in a moment toward him. But I had no tie to speak of, for he was gone. Emma was on his track and came in as he went out. She said, Emily, what did Joseph say to you? I answered, He asked how I felt. She said, You might as well tell me, for I am determined that a stop shall be put to these things, and I want you to tell me what he says to you. I replied, I shall not tell you. He can say what he pleases to me, and I shall not report it to you. There has been mischief enough made by doing that. I am as sick of these things as you can be. And I said it in a tone that she knew I meant it. End quote. So Eliza is, of course, caught in this mess as well. Those were Emily's words, but you can see that this is a really fraught time. These girls are a lot younger than Emma. Emma is a person of status. She has a lot of influence. I imagine it would be a lot to stand up to Emma Smith. So, of course, they go, they're shipped off into other people's homes. And after Joseph dies, just like just like a lot of Joseph's plural wives, they would go on to marry some of the men that stepped up and said that they would marry Joseph's wives. Now, uh, Eliza's different because she, most women married Brigham Young or Heber C. Kimball, but she was one of the very... I think that one of the only ones that married a mass alignment. She married a mass alignment on September 28, 1846, as his fourth plural wife. He had previously married Louisa Tanner and Kirtland in 1835, and Eliza's sister Caroline, aged 17, had become a mass's first plural wife a few weeks earlier. He had also married Diantha Walker, Pauline Phelps, Priscilla Turley, and Cornelia Levitt. By 1851, he would marry his eighth and final wife, Lydia Partridge who was a sister of his wife's Caroline and Eliza. This was not an easy marriage. Most of these wouldn't, wouldn't be, especially the ones that started in Nauvoo. They were very complicated. Eliza explains the difficulties of this early marriage. I was then living with a family by the name of Coolidge. I stayed with them for a year or more until I was married to a man by the name of Masalaiman, one of the Twelve Apostles. I then went to live with my mother for a while, and after that lived with him and his wife, Maria Luisa. Times were not then as they are now in 1877, but a woman living in polygamy dare not let it be known, and nothing but a firm desire to keep the commandments of the Lord could have induced a girl to marry in that way. I thought my trials were very severe in the line that I am often led to wonder. I thought my trials were very severe in the line, and I am often led to wonder how it was that a person of my temperament 
to get along with it and not rebel. But I know it was the Lord who kept me from opposing his plans, although in my heart I felt I could not submit to them. But I did, and I am thankful to my Heavenly Father for the care he had over me in those troublous times. After I married the second time, we remained in Nauvoo for a few months, living a part of the time in the back part of my mother's house. In February 1846, we left Nauvoo and crossed the Mississippi River with many of the saints and started to go to the Rocky Mountains, where we hoped to be free to serve the Lord as we thought best. While crossing the river, the ice came down in large pieces and threatened to sink our boat. But at this time, as well as many others, we were preserved by the power of God. We went to Father John Tanner's and stayed several days as the weather was very cold and we were not in a hurry to camp out until we were obliged to. After a few days, we left Father Tanner and joined the camp of the saints on Sugar Creek. The weather was very cold, the snow deep, and we could not but be very uncomfortable as we were very poorly fitted out for such a journey at that time of the year. On the 1st of March, 1846, the camp of Israel began to move. There were about 400 wagons. After traveling about five miles, they camped for the night, scraped away the snow, and pitched their tents. Fortunately for us, there was plenty of wood, and the brethren made large fires in front of the tents, which kept us from freezing. We could not possibly be made comfortable under such circumstances, but did not complain as we were leaving the land of our enemies and hoped for better times. I think it was near the last of April, 1846, that the camp reached a place called by our brethren Pisgah. Here they concluded a part of the camp might stop and raise some crops of grain, and as all were not prepared to go on much farther. We had thus far had a most unpleasant journey. After the snows came rains, almost without cessation, making the ground very muddy, and some of the time the roads impassable, so that we had to remain in camp much more than we wished to. But we were desirous to get to some place where we could make homes again. At Pisgah, I left my mother and sisters Emily and Lydia and our little brother Edward and my mother's husband, Father Huntington, to stay until the next year or until there should be a convenient opportunity for them to come. My sister Emily was then President Brigham Young's wife and had one child, a boy named Edward. My sister Caroline was one of the wives of my husband and traveled on with us. When we had traveled about 130 miles from Pisgah, there came a requisition from the United States for 500 men to be taken from our camps to go to Mexico to help the nation who had driven us out from their midst. Our people responded to the call and sent the 500, many of whom left their wives and children in their wagons, not knowing where they would settle and find a home. Left them to the care of their brethren and friends, and many of them never met again. Some of the men died during their absence. Others returned to find that their wives had sunk under the weight of care and disease and their children scattered, but the prophet of the Lord had said go, and they went, trusting in him. One woman was living with us whose husband was in the battalion, Mormon battalion. When it was time for them to return, she was very much elated and rented a room and made all preparations for housekeeping. But, oh, what a disappointment waited her. When the company came and she thought her happiness nearly complete, they told her he was dead and had been for months. Oh, the agony that she endured. It cannot be described. My heart ached for her, but I could not comfort her. I will go back to the time that I left Nauvoo on the 9th of February, 1846, and write from my private journal. It will not perhaps be very interesting to anyone but myself, but it shows more particularly how we were situated and the hardships we endured in accomplishing the journey. On February 9th, 1846, I bade adieu to my friends in Nauvoo 
and in company with my husband, Amasa Lyman, Daniel P. Clark, and wife, Henry Rollins, and Dianidia W. Lyman, one of my husband's wives, started westward for some place where we might worship God according to the dictates of our own consciences. We went about one mile to the Mississippi River, waited about three hours, then succeeded in procuring a boat onto which we put our horses and wagons, and as there was no prospect of Father Huntington crossing the river that night, we took my mother and sisters Caroline and Lydia and brother Edward with us and crossed the river. When we were about midway, we saw a boat at some distance from us, sinking, with no one near to assist them, but fortunately for them, they were near a sandbar so that they were not drowned, and soon a boat reached them and took them safely to shore. Our boat got into the ice which hindered us about an hour, but did no damage. We went to Brother Sidney Tanner's, where a part of us stayed all night, and the rest stayed at Nathan Tanner's. Eliza also has several entries that record her trials in Coming West. She would give birth on the trail, assisted by a famous name that we've already talked about, also another wife of Joseph Smith, Patty Sessions. She wrote on July 14th, My first child was born here, in a wagon. I have named him Don Carlos. I am very uncomfortably situated for a sick woman. The scorching sun shining upon the wagon through the day and the cool air at night is almost too much of a change to be healthy. Now you notice she named her baby Don Carlos. This would become a popular name because Joseph Smith's brother, younger brother who passed away, was also named Don Carlos. And Joseph Smith also named one of his children Don Carlos. The journey and birth proved very dangerous to Eliza, and she was afflicted by, quote, childbed fever and almost died. She would write on August 9th, I am now like a skeleton, so much so that those who have not been with me do not know me till told who I am. It is a fearful place to be sick fever in a wagon with no shade overhead except the cold and the July sun shining every day. All the comfort I had was the pure cold water from a spring nearby, but the Lord preserved my life for some purpose for which I thank him. My babe, in consequence of my sickness, is very poor, but as I get better, I hope to see him improve. By October, Eliza was in winter quarters, where Amasa would build her a small cabin. She was pleased and wrote that it was, quote, The first house my baby was ever in. I feel extremely thankful for the privilege of sitting by a fire where the wind cannot blow it in every direction. Unfortunately for her, like many saints along the trail with these really rugged conditions. Um, by November, her baby would pass away after becoming ill. She would write, The baby is dead, and I mourn his loss. We have done the best we knew how for him, but nothing has done any good. He continued to fail from the time he was taken sick. My sister Caroline and I sat up every night with him and tried to save him from death, for we could not bear to part with him, but we were powerless. The Lord took him, and I will try to be reconciled and think that all is for the best. He was my greatest comfort and was nearly always in my arms. But he is gone, and I cannot recall him. So I must prepare to meet him in another, and I hope a happier world than this. I still have friends who are near to me. If I had not, I should wish to bid this world farewell, for it is full of disappointments and sorrow. But I believe that there is a power that watches over us and does all things right. He was buried on the west side of Missouri at the second ridge back, the 11th grave on the second row counting from right to left, the first row being farthest from the river. This will be no guide as the place cannot be found in a few years. So you can imagine the heartache that it would feel like to bury your firstborn child. 
in an unmarked grave that you knew that you would never be able to visit again. That would be a really difficult thing to experience. Eliza Arsnow, who was also a wife of uh, Joseph Smith, wrote a poem for Eliza Partridge and her loss, which Eliza Partridge recorded in her journal, quote, Beloved Eliza, do not weep. Your baby sleeps a quiet sleep. Although in dust his body lies, his spirit soars above the skies. Eliza continued west and was soon pregnant again. She gave birth to a second child on the Overland Trail and named him Platt D'Alton Lyman. She would reach the Salt Lake Valley on October 17th, shortly a year after the death of her first baby. The first year in Utah wasn't without trials. As we know, it was very, um, very much the frontier. They didn't have anything when they got there. And of course, the men were already spread then amongst their wives and uh, were in a masses case since he was an important man. He was sent on a mission quite soon, leaving his wives to fend for themselves. The women suffered from cold and exposure. And at one point, Eliza had to return to living in a wagon because her tent had burnt down. So a tent is not much better than a wagon at this point. Amasa would send supplies from California where he was serving and would return, but he would have to travel back frequently. Eventually, four of Amasa's lives ended up living in California and four were in Utah. Now, this was not uncommon. Sometimes these men had their wives spread out all over the place. Three would go on to leave him. That was also not uncommon. We're going to do a whole episode on the just polygamous divorces. In 1860, Young appointed the three of the twelve apostles, Lyman, Charles C. Rich, and George Hugh Cannon, to the presidency of the church's European mission. And on March 16, 1862, Lyman preached a sermon in Dundee, Scotland, which all but denied the reality and the necessity of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now, this is kind of a famous sermon that he preached. It caused him a lot of trouble. He said that, you know, the atonement of Jesus Christ is not necessary. This is kind of a central tenet of LDS doctrine and a lot of Christianity. His speech would be overlooked for a few years. And we don't know what happened to really prompt this. Maybe somebody knows. I don't know. But eventually it shows up that Lyman has given this this sermon. And he is brought before the Quorum of the Twelve on January 21st, 1867 to answer for his uh, heretical words. Lyman confesses, yeah, it was an error. I apologize. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? He even writes a letter of apology to the general membership and they publish it in the Desert News at the time. Amasa had apparently been studying the teachings of Andrew Jackson Davis, who was one of America's most prominent spiritualists, and even participated in a seance while he was in California. Now, it's one thing to be a polygamous Mormon in Utah. It's another thing to be a leader in Utah as a polygamous Mormon, and he is a leader. But what you don't do is go off and now preach something that could contradict what Brigham Young is teaching or what the saints are teaching. This is a huge stigma. There's a lot of gossip going on. Eliza would record her suspicions of Amasa's looming apostasy. Brother Lyman seemed to feel uncomfortable in his mind, and I thought many times to not enjoy the portion of the Spirit of the Lord that a man in his position should, he being one of the twelve apostles. I did not know what was wrong with him, but I could see that he was very unhappy. Despite giving an apology to the, both the general membership and the Quorum of the Twelve. Several months later, Lyman would preach universalism 
and basically the same substance of his 1862 Dundee speech to a congregation in Beaver, Utah. This is a problem. As a result of his failure to live up to his confession and apology, the church strips Lyman of his apostleship on October 6, 1867, and he was excommunicated from the church on May 12, 1870. So if someone ever asks you if one of the Quorum of the Twelve general authorities is excommunicated, Amasa Lyman is one of them. There are others, but he is one of them. After his excommunication, Amasa became more devoted to his wife's. He has a lot more time on his hands. He started associating with William Godby. Now, Godby is an interesting name. You'll, you'll hear it if you've heard of the Godbyites. He was a leader of Utah liberal universalism and became president of the Godbyite Association. This was the final straw for Eliza and the other Partridge sisters. They would be the three that would leave Amasa and their plural marriage was over. They couldn't put up with his apostasy. They could put up with famine. They could put up with loneliness. They could not put up with his apostasy. Lyman would die at Fillmore in Utah. And at the time, Eliza was living in Fillmore, focused on raising her children. By direction of Church President Joseph F. Smith on January 12, 1909, Lyman was posthumously reinstated as a church member and as an apostle. Eliza would write of his death. We went to the grave at three o'clock, returned about sundown. sundown. I shall not attempt to describe the feelings that I had when I saw the father of my children sleeping the sleep of death. He who had once been an apostle of the Lord and one of the leading men in the church proclaiming the everlasting gospel to the nations of the earth and being once a great and good man. But how is it now? I could only say in my heart, how are the mighty fallen? He had denied his religion, the doctrines that he had taught to others for many years, and during his last days suffered himself to be severed from the church of Christ and associated with apostates and spiritualists and disaffected persons. Instead of being buried in the robes of the priesthood, he requested to be buried in a black coat and pants, which was done as he requested. Eliza would move to Salt Lake with her children and by 1879 became an activist for polygamy. You know, we we talk about early Mormon women being activists, and now it's seen as such a bad thing. But these women were actually very much organized and involved in a lot of things, including suffrage and pro-polygamy activism. So she was involved for this. She said in a speech about the practice that polygamy was, quote, The most pure and holy principles that has ever been revealed to the Latter-day Saints, and one that is necessary to our exaltation. Eliza continued to work towards building Zion in this way while being completely involved in the lives of her children. She had given birth to five total, and she was also devoted to the children of her sister wives. On June 15, 1885, she was called to preside over the primary president at Oak Creek. When she was 65, she would pass away of pneumonia on March 2, 1886, in Oak City, Utah. Her son, Platt, recorded in his journal, quote, She had been a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints from her childhood and had reared her children in that and had obeyed herself every law and order of the church so far as the privilege had been given her to do so. She was a kind and affectionate mother, very solicitous for the welfare of her children and esteeming nothing which she could do for their comfort or happiness, a hardship or sacrifice. May she rest in peace until the saints of God are called forth in the morning of the first resurrection, which she will surely have a part, end quote. So that's the story of Eliza Partridge. Fascinating story. 
you would see that even though she was not a fan of her second husband, she still really had a strong testimony of the principle of plural marriage. And while that's hard for people to understand, that was her experience, so much so that she felt really much a sisterhood amongst her sister wives to help raise their children and to help agitate for the for the practice later on. So again, I'd like to thank Grace Poole for helping us read for her today and bring her voice to, to life. And uh, I thank you all for listening to the series, A Year of Polygamy, and I hope you stay with us throughout the rest of the, rest of the year as we break this down. If you can, give a small donation at FeministWarnHousewivesPodcast.org to help keep this series going. And thank you, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>